Well, good morning, Church at the Red Door. Thank you, Randy. I appreciate that. And uh, yes, it's true. Day 49, since I've seen uh, your unbelievably precious faces, uh, we, we miss gathering uh, in ways that we never imagined that we ever would. But uh, I tell you what, it just never will be the same again. Uh, I'm excited about taking this next step uh, over this coming part now, this post Jericho from what we looked at last week. You know, it was Napoleon who, who said that the greatest danger occurs at the moment of victory. And as we get into this, we're going to see ultimately that they simply did not inquire of the Lord. And so we want to inquire of the Lord. We, we don't think that we can just get through this. I think that's what we're going to learn from this next segment of this journey through the Exodus template is that, yeah, we can, just, we can make it through this and we can do it ourselves and it's kind of a humanistic type view. But we as a church recognizes, uh, and, I, and I think now globally we're recognizing that we need to pray. So I'm going to turn it now back to Pastor Paul and he's going to talk to you uh, very briefly about what uh, we're entering into uh, this Unite movement around the globe to pray. And so Paul, would you describe what we're going to enter into over the next few weeks? Good morning, Pastor Jeff, and good morning, Church at the Red Door family. We have a wonderful opportunity to engage with thousands of churches to unite in prayer to come against that COVID-19 and for a spiritual renewing in our world. You're going to be receiving an email tomorrow from me with more information on how we can unite with millions of believers praying for healing, not just for our country, but literally for the world. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 states this, And my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sins, and will heal their land. So let's unite. Let us focus on God. Let's seek his help and his healing. And let's believe for an awakening in our nation. Back to you, Pastor Jeff. Okay, Paul, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And uh, I'm excited about this movement. You know, it was uh, Pam Carlson who sent this to us. And uh, she, as Paul may have alluded to, and, and she said, uh, look, we really want to get involved in this. I think we should. And I loved it because it was apolitical. It's nothing. It's just us as a body of Christ crying out to God uh, for him to act. Now, now we're going to press on into this next step in the Exodus template. And I've got to tell you, I've been, I've been really struggling with this next step, how to do this. Uh, and here's the, here's the point. This is, and I hate this as it relates to television. A lot of times on television, especially a sitcom or something like that, you'll watch it and you expect it to be nice and buttoned up. You've got a beginning, you've got a middle, and you've got an end, and they can do it all in 20 or 30 minutes on a sitcom. And occasionally you'd get those episodes where you would finish and it'd get right to the point and it would say to be continued next week. And I'm afraid that that's what we're going to do. Now, that's not a bad thing. It's just uh, I'm prepping you early. We are not going to finish this little segment of this, uh, what I'm calling snatching defeat out of the jaws of victory. What happened after Jericho and I think it's going to be so, again, as I say over and over, so instructive for us to see, again, as, uh, as I alluded to and quoted earlier, Napoleon, you know, 
It's just that moment of victory. That's the most dangerous moment, and I think it's true in our own spiritual lives as well. I'm going to go back in Joshua chapter 6 and just remind you of what God had very firmly said when they were going into Jericho and how they were to respond. Now, uh, Joshua chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. The city shall be under the ban, it and all that it belongs to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot and all who are with her in the house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But as for you, now catch this, only keep yourselves from the things under the ban so that you do not covet them and take some of the things under the ban and make the camp of Israel accursed and bring trouble on it. But all the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. And then we get Joshua chapter 7 verse 1 simply says that Israel what? The children of Israel acted unfaithfully. And and it's as simple as that. And then Joshua chapter 7 uh, leads us into what happened after Jericho. And I'm going to just give you a summation of that. Well, what happened is, is that they sent spies not too dissimilar from what happened to Jericho. The spies went in and came back with a report and they were at a place called Ai. I think actually in Hebrew it's called Ahi. But here it's I. We'll just call it I. So they went into I, spied it out, came back and said, look, here's the story. Uh, these guys are going to be rollovers. This, gonna, this deal is going to be a rollover deal. We only need two, maybe 3,000 guys at the most. We can go up. We can take them. And as a result, what happened? Well, very interestingly, we get no instruction from the Lord. We get no and then they inquired of the Lord, shall they go up? We got none of that. We just got, hey, let's send in some spies. Here's the issue. And, you know, it's easy. This is going to, we, you know, we're hearing this a lot with this coronavirus. We got this. We can get through this. We, the indomitable human spirit, we're, we're a large force. They're a small force. We can, we can get through this. And they didn't inquire the Lord. One of the most instructive things in all of this to me, as we looked at last week with Jericho, is that, oh my gosh, they were very uh, explicit instructions about, as you will remember, the fighting men first, and then the priests in the Ark of the Covenant, and the rear guard, and, and no, don't just go in and go and circle six days, and then the seventh day circle seven times, and then and then blow the trumpets, and then a great shout, and it was very defined, and I, I think we're guilty of this, I'll, I'll tell you. It's a struggle at Church at the Red Door to, to constantly be in every decision we make. Well, let's pray about this. Let's let's inquire of the Lord. Now, uh, every decision, every time, well, yeah, an atmosphere of prayer constantly in your life will protect you from just saying, hey, we've got this, we've got this taken care of, no problem, we can do this. And, and you, you analyze, you do a pro and con, you do whatever in your mind, and you calculate that in an instant, and you realize, wow, did we ever really pray about this? And, and they didn't. So what happened? Well, the end of the story gets more and more difficult because they sent 3,000 men. They went up to Ai. And what happened? They were uh, completely repulsed. And they went flying back down uh, where they were from. And they just began to scatter. And the Bible simply tells us that Israel lost 36 men that we know of. Now, there may have been a few more because they were still, there was still some more battle. But... 36 men at least were lost during this battle. And, and what happened? 
I mean, here's Jericho. It's a well-fortified city. It's it's filled with people, and, and they've got these walls that are high up on a mounding, and, and this is just some simple little, this is nothing. We've got this. And then they were completely wiped out. Now, one of the things that uh, we see as a result of that, if you look, Joshua chapter 7, immediately you can imagine Joshua must, he, he was freaking out. I mean, what has happened here? Listen to his language, Joshua chapter 7, verse 7 says, Joshua then said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring the people over the Jordan only to live, deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth and what will you do for your great name? Now, I find that fascinating. Uh, Joshua's just like, we should have stayed on the other side of the Jordan. It was better. You can see. Now, this happens. This has happened to me so many times in my life. There, there'll be a great victory. There'll be like a crossing, a great moment where there's this unbelievable, and then I will find myself in complete failure or uh, really find myself in trouble. I, I've had that happen so many times, especially early in my walk before I really understood this template. And that's where he was. You know, I should have stayed. We should have stayed on the other side. Why did we come over here and get involved in all this Christian ministry stuff? I, 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 my life was fine. You know, I was saved. I, why did I cross over here? Why, why did we do this? And you can see that rising up in one of the most faith-filled men we have in all of Scripture. I mean, I could see somebody else, but Joshua, how is Joshua having this attitude? You know, I love the Lord's response to Joshua. He simply says, the Lord said, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? And then he gives him insight. He said, here's why you lost. Israel has sinned. Israel has sinned. Now, of course, the question arises, well, what if they had inquired before the battle? Might the Lord have said, look, you've got sin in the camp. There is something that's occurred here that is uh, profoundly against my instruction for you. You need to get this thing settled before you go into the next battle. But obviously they hadn't inquired of the Lord. Obviously they didn't know that what had happened. Well, some things had been taken from under the ban. We get a guy from the tribe of Judah his forefather was Zerah. That'll have a lot of import for us as we get further into this uh, message, possibly next week. It's a guy named Achan. And Achan had taken some things under the ban. He said, no, as we read earlier, you're to not take this. This is for the Lord's treasury. Nobody steal. When you go in to plunder Jericho, you do exactly as I've told you. Burn what I've told you to burn take the things I've told you, put them into the treasury. And Achan saw some things and, and grabbed them. I mean, you, you see this kind of thing. This is a, a lot of times you see this on television, uh, these um, uh, policeman shows, right? They come in or these detective shows and, and then there's a big raid or something. And then you've always got crooked cops who grab some of the money or some of the stuff and they line their pockets with it. And we kind of accept that as being part. God didn't accept that at all. And he said, take nothing from under the ban. And yet Achan was found to be with some of the banned material and they, they didn't know. But at that time, they didn't know who it was. So now that, I've got to tell you, this process was 
brutal. Now, the way the Lord told them, and you've got to understand, this is pre-cross. We, they didn't have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. So God told them to draw, to cast lots. Now, we don't really understand historically what the casting of lots was, actually. Uh, we would maybe make that equivalent to uh, throwing up a coin, tossing a coin, or drawing straws, or, or maybe even some dice and rolling in the high number, or drawing a card out and, and the high card wins. We don't know exactly what that looked like, but it, it looked like a game of chance, and yet Proverbs tells us that even though the, the lots are cast into the lap, the decision, every decision is from the Lord, certainly in this case. Now again, this is even what they did for the to determine after Judas Iscariot, they threw, they cast lots, and, and for why? To replace the disciple. That's before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We don't do that anymore, but it was part of the biblical process. And then what did they do? He said, well, bring all the tribes together. And then they cast lots. And the tribe of Judah, it fell to them. And now bring all the, the families together, you know, the households. Uh, the families, cast lots, this particular family. Uh, okay, now cast lots again, this particular household. Okay, cast lots again, and then it finally fell to Achan among all the households. And so you can imagine, this is a dramatic dramatic process okay, and this is not where uh, you, normally if you keep you keep winning and you keep on uh, you know on all these shows that we see today uh, the last contestant standing and American Idol and all these things this is the inverse you want to be eliminated as quickly as you can so first uh, Judah it was somebody in Judah and then it was this particular Zara and then this this family and this household and then finally man by man and you can imagine again the drama and it falls to Achan. Now, once Achan is pinpointed as being the man who stole it, he immediately begins the process of confession. You know, that happens a lot in our lives when we are the ones that are pinpointed by God. Then we confess. You know, uh, one of the lessons I get from this is I want to have an, a lifestyle of repentance where there is constantly a sense of Lord, I failed a daily, uh, you know, it's part of the prayer Jesus taught us. Forgive us our trespasses. That's a daily prayer. Lord, uh, cleanse my heart. Don't let anything take root in me. I, I want to eradicate anything so I don't have to end up in some very horrific defeat in my life, spiritually speaking. Lord, help me. And it's an ongoing process, but uh, the confession doesn't work when it finally gets down to the very end. And and the tragic part of this is, that, and I know this is hard to digest because you look at this and go, how could God do this? It's a little bit what we looked at last week with Jericho. How, how could God, he wipes out Achan, he wipes out his entire family, uh, all their livestock, everything, the children, the women, everything were completely, and then the Bible simply says what? Well, it says Joshua 7.26 says, and they raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. Now, the Achor means, the very definition of Achor is trouble, the Valley of Trouble. Now, again, I think what's important to see is that God knew that this was going to be a template for his church for all time's sake. This moment in time where, again, he brings judgment in time 
was for the church for all times. Again, I, I refer back to uh, these uh, these watch out verses, if you will, and we get it. You know, this has been the whole basis of the Exodus template. First Corinthians ten, eleven through twelve says, "Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written." for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now, what we haven't done is read the next verse. The next verse says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he doesn't fall. I mean, what the Lord is telling us right here, this template will protect us from trouble. It'll make us fruitful, but it will also protect us from the profound defeats that wanna reach up and grab us. I mean, the Bible's very clear that the devil roars like a lion seeking for someone to devour. I think of a few other places in the scriptures. I, uh, again, I call these the watch out verses. First uh, Peter chapter one, it says, if you address the father, the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with a precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless. Uh, recognize that God judges our works and defeats can happen even after we have come to know Jesus. I don't think there's any one of us that could say, well, I've had no defeats. I came to Christ, I got baptized, I was filled with the Spirit, and then I had no defeats. This template gives us an outline, a, a deep understanding that sometimes in the midst, right in the midst of some of our greatest victories, we have to be very cautious because we get the sense that, okay, we figured this out, we've got this, and, and we have to be aware. 1 Peter 4, 17 uh, it's time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? In other words, some people, and I, I think it's a hyper grace message. Look, I believe in absolute grace. We're saved by grace through faith. Trust me. But we have to be aware that God still brings judgment in time at times. He brings judgment on us. He disciplines us. And we're going to see that a little bit later. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, had they supplied moral excellence, had Achan supplied moral excellence, he wouldn't have taken what was underneath the band, but he was struggling with greed. He says, apply uh, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control. Achan had no self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. Look, Achan had already known that it was going to affect the entire nation of Israel had someone taken the ban. There's no brotherly kindness in knowing that your sin, his sin affected the lives of 36 other men and their families. I mean, his sin, sin always, always has a price even after we come to know Jesus, even after we're deep into ministry and have crossed the Jordan and gone in and, and taking things for God, our sin still has ramifications. He goes on to say in verse eight, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of Jesus. For he who lacks these qualities is blind 
or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his for, former sins. And then finally, in our, you know, in our verses that we're looking at about the watch out verses, I'm calling them, James 4, 7, submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Look, if, if we weren't still in a battle where Satan could take uh, territory from us, that we would be unfruitful or that we would need really harsh discipline, then these verses would make any sense in the context of the New Testament and the New Covenant. But they do. And so this is still very instructive for us, folks. We have to be so cautious. Maybe during this, uh, this forced solitude, you've made some dramatic strides in your walk. You're reading the Bible more, maybe maybe more prayerful than you've ever been. You've got to realize, I have to realize, that when we finally come out from under this shelter at home stuff and we, we start re-engaging the society, are we just going to return to the old ways of doing things? Or is it just going to be a recycled and it's going to be a pre-coronavirus 2.0 and we'll go back to the same things we did and lose the passion again? I think we have to be cautious. Many of you may be uh, and you're really having some spiritual victories during this time. Spiritual victories, even though you may be suffering, maybe having great spiritual victories. We've got to be cautious that I is on the other side of Jericho. And if that's the case, we need to constantly be inquiring of the Lord. Now, there's some things that emerge in this. And I'm always, when, I, when I'm reading the Bible, I'm always looking for patterns. God says it one way, and he says it another way, and he says it another way. And I have found, I believe, many patterns in which we find a crossing, and then we find a profound victory, and then we see a devastating defeat. We see it over and over in Scripture. I've seen it not only in my personal life at various points, but I also see it in Scripture as instruction for us. Let's go back and think about it. Well, what happened when Moses, they crossed the... The, the Egyptians were defeated, the sea was parted, it, it flooded back over, wiped out their enemy, and immediately they began to complain and to murmur, and, and they also didn't pay any attention, and they weren't seeking the counsel of the Lord, and let's look at a particular battle. Number, numbers 14, verse 40. So again, let, let me be clear, they, they cross, they go through their baptism, they go into the wilderness, and immediately it was a great victory. The Egyptians were destroyed. And then we get this battle that occurs in Numbers 1440. In the morning, however, they rose up early, went up to the ridge of the hill country, saying, Here we are. We have indeed sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised. But Moses said, Why then are you transgressing the commandment of the Lord when it, when it will not succeed? Do not go up, or you will be struck down before your enemies, for the Lord is not among you. For the Amalekites and the Canaanites will be there in front of you and you will fall by the sword inasmuch as you have turned back from following the Lord and the Lord will not be with you. But they went up heedlessly to the edge of to the ridge of the hill country. Neither the Ark of the Covenant nor Moses left the camp. Now, stop for one second. This is powerful. Uh, Moses is a prefiguring of Jesus. So they have a battle. They've sinned. They come back. Moses is a prefiguring of Jesus. Uh, Mo, it's like Jesus, he said, don't do that. Don't go there. There's still issues here. There's sin among the camp. And he said, they went. we just do it heedlessly. We don't inquire. We go. And what doesn't go with us here in terms of this template? 
Well, the Ark of the Covenant, the very presence of God doesn't go with us. Moses, a prefiguring of Jesus, is not with us. Some of you are fighting battles today, but the Lord isn't in it. I mean, he's in you and he loves you, but you're fighting battles that the Lord has not called you to fight, and as a result, you find yourself in tremendous trouble. Now, the end result is awful. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in the hill country came down, struck them, beat them down as far as Hormah. So here's the question. Can God bless sin? I mean, it's the big question. Uh, Clearly, the Bible says don't grieve the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 5, don't quench the Spirit. And then verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. How do you quench the Holy Spirit in your life, that voice, that uh, the presence of God in your life because, well, you're not abstaining from evil. How can you live in evil? How can you have this hidden sin? And, and like Achan, how can you have that and then expect to go into these battles and be victorious? I think it's powerful, powerful instruction and it's also frightening to be honest with you. It's frightening. You know, some of us have this secret sin. We have to have a lifestyle of repentance. Obviously, we're studying the story of Joshua with Jericho and then a great victory, a crossing, a victory, and then a defeat. But again, we see it with Elisha. This is several hundred years later. The prophet Elisha crosses the Jordan and then Moab is routed. They have an unbelievable victory. And then he has a servant, not too dissimilar from Achan in my view, named Gehazi. And his greed dramatically affects his entire family. I mean, it's an unbelievable defeat after this unbelievable victory over Moab. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 13 through 14. He also took up the mantle of Elijah, that's Elisha, that fell from him and returned and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Now, folks, let me, let's be clear. This this crossing of the Jordan and why it's always borne out in Scripture, we see it over and over. It, God's trying to tell us something through this. Here's Elisha now, again, during the time of the kings, uh, well after the time of Joshua, uh, as we go forward into the history of Israel. And again, he follows Elijah, and then there's a crossing of the Jordan. He took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had also struck the waters, they were divided here and there, and Elisha crossed over. Okay, so now we have a a crossing over, all right? This is our idea this morning. We're crossing over, and now 2 Kings 5, 25. But he went in and stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. Now, in between this moment, we have this very interesting Moab experienced, Uh, Elisha's involved, there's this powerful victory, the enemies see blood, God had given them very strange instruction, and they were to go in and build these trenches, and then the enemy came and saw, they put water in them, and it looked like blood, and and actually God put water in them, they filled with water, and it looked like blood, and then they came down, and, and the enemy thought they were already wiped out, and they were caught by surprise, and you have this amazing victory. But right after this victory, there is this moment in which this servant, Gehazi, happens. And here's essentially the story. There's a king, Naaman, that comes down and wants to be healed. And he ends up being healed of his leprosy. He offers Elisha anything. Elisha won't touch it. And as a result, the king leaves and Gehazi's like, wait a minute. 
I, I think I want some of that. Nobody's going to know the difference. Just like Aiken, nobody's going to know the difference if I take this. God told me not to touch it, but you know, I mean, who, who cares? Nobody's going to know. And so Gehazi runs after this Naaman and says, you know what? My master Elisha changed his mind. And uh, why don't you give us some clothes and this and that? Naaman says, name your price. Whatever your master wants. He healed me of my leprosy. Uh, this is amazing. Just take whatever you want. And Gehazi comes back. Exactly the story that we had gotten with Achan. Very interesting. And then this is 2 Kings 5.25. And he went in and stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. So now we've got uh, a, a, taking something that he wasn't supposed to take. Now we've got a lie. And now we have a cover-up. And he said to him, did, my, did not my heart go with you when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money and clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence, a leper as white as snow. Now, again, we have a crossing. We have a profound victory. And then after that, here again, we have trouble that's brought into the camp. In this case, it only affected he and his family, but it affected generations. Is it time to be thinking about yourself and, and trying to uh, enrich yourself? Is that the time that we're in? Achan, Gehazi, I mean, what's going on here? And, and I'm sure they had it all justified in their mind. Everything was legitimate in their mind. Now let's press forward to the New Testament. I think we again see a pattern and this is a difficult, difficult passage of scripture. Theologians just don't seem to completely agree as to what happened here, but I think it clearly gives us a picture. So I'm gonna give you maybe a couple of takes on this and then I'll give you my thoughts on it. But it's the story that we pick up in Acts chapter five. Acts chapter five. It actually starts back with Acts chapter 4. I'm going to start the story there. Great thing. Something had just happened. They had all been baptized. In other words, here's a crossing. Acts chapter 2, 3,000 people get baptized that day. It starts filling the churches. Here's the beautiful picture of community that we have in Acts 4, 32. It says, The congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite by Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it, and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, what's going on here? Well, there's just this beautiful communal vibe going on. Anybody who had need among them, people were selling their property, and, and it was what I have called before unenforced socialism. Okay, so nobody was forcing this on them. They just said, hey, the spirit was living on the inside. They just didn't feel like, how can I be living in such splendor over here? I've got all this extra. And there's some people right in my own congregation that are in real need. How, how, this just isn't right. The Holy Spirit was provoking this. 
And, and that's, again, a great victory. So we have a crossing. We have an unbelievable victory. This is a profound victory, a victory over materialism. And they were freely sharing with one another. Wow, amazing. And then an amazing defeat. Acts chapter 5, again, very difficult to unpack, but let's read. Acts chapter 5, verse 1. But a man, unfortunately, in the line of the Gehazi and Achan and, and all the rest, named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and then kept back some of the price for himself. And with his wife's full knowledge and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. We saw they were doing it. It was a beautiful picture of community. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. And the young men got up and covered him up. And, and after carrying him out, they buried him. What an unbelievable story. Well, now there elapsed an interval of about three hours. And his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded and said, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the entire church and over all that had heard these things. So we have this picture again of a crossing. People were being baptized. An amazing defeat of materialism. They were all just sharing and there was this beautiful thing. And then in comes greed again right in the line with Achan and Gehazi, and here comes Ananias and said, okay, we want to be part of this, but we don't. So they lied. They sold a piece. They didn't have to do that. And there's nothing that said they had to do that. They sold a piece of property. They came. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and they said, was that, is that the entire price? Now, how did, how did Paul know that? Uh, and, and he said, well, excuse me, how did Peter know that? Well, Peter had the Holy Spirit living on the inside and had a word of knowledge. And Ananias lies. Now, what's the big thing? What had they conceived? They said, well, we want to we wanna get the credit in people's minds for us being generous of spirit. But so we're just going to kind of fabricate what we've given, act as if we've given more than we have. Oh, yeah, we sold that piece of land. and But they held back and then gave a portion of it. Now, let me tell you something, folks. I've been in and around the church. I know things that have occurred in my own life. I, I mean, lying about money or at least stretching the truth happens all the time. And you think about, oh my gosh, if God did that today, I mean, who could really stand? I mean, there's so much kind of people talking about not having enough or something or this or holding back or trying to look good in the eyes of people. I mean, what's happened here? What has happened here? Well, the interpretations abound. Some will say that Ananias and Sapphira were not part of the baptized ones and came in, were not filled with the Holy Spirit, and as a result, they just lied. We're trying to maybe use this community to do some networking, and what, they didn't even think about it. And, and, uh, and can Satan fill the hearts of someone who's a believer? And many would say, no, that's not possible. 
And so, yeah, they would look at Ananias and Sapphira as outsiders that God then judged, but boy, that could never happen to us because, I mean, if God did that every time someone even stretched the truth a little bit about giving or their ability to give in some way, then boy, who could really stand under that? And so here we have some questions. And uh, let me tell you something, there are some amazing teachers that disagree on this and I'm great teachers on both sides of this. I happen to be in the camp that do that believes that Ananias and Sapphira were part of the Acts 4. We just came out of Acts chapter 4, part of those baptized, spirit-filled believers. And I think they lied, and I think God chose this moment at the launching of the church to make a very clear statement about how much he hates sin. How much he hates sin. I think, I, this is my view, again, some would disagree, and there's, again, it's about, it seems to be in my research, about equal on both sides. But I would believe that they kept their salvation. I don't think they died because they just, they had this lie, and I'll, and I'll give you the reasons for why I believe that. And if you disagree, again, this is, I'm not dogmatic about this point, but uh, I just think they were being sternly disciplined in such a way, and I think the scripture bears this out, that sometimes God disciplines believers even by taking their lives. And I know that sounds crazy, but let's let, just bear with me. Let's, let's walk through the scriptures here as we start to wind this up. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, you say, well, yeah, that's one thing, to, that God disciplines us. We can agree that even as believers, of, as crossers who've had victories in Christ and have the Spirit dwelling in us, that God continues during this lifetime to continue the process of discipline. But this is more than discipline. Did God take their lives? Now, again, that's a point of contention. Did God take their lives? Did Peter kill them? Did Or was it just a heart attack? I, I don't know. I think we could argue, but the Bible really doesn't tell us. Well, it doesn't say that God killed them. It doesn't say that Peter put some kind of curse on them. And it also doesn't say that they had a natural heart attack of which was just, uh, just came upon them because they were terrified at being confronted with their sin. I don't know the answer to that, but I do know that God disciplines those that he loves. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. So judgment happens within the context of the church. Now, this brings up probably one of the most, you think Ananias and Sapphira are difficult to try to exposit. This even gets more challenging, friends. 1 John 5, 16, and, and again, this is so difficult. It's you, Again, it's one of those passages of scripture that you end up coming down on one side or the other. Uh, it says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, notice his brother, so these are not physical brothers, this is a, another Christian, a believer. He shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make a request for this. Uh, I don't know how to, I don't even know how to grapple with this. The views are so all over the board. What is the sin? Is it the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? I think the point is that God is absolutely serious about sin 
among believers. Defeats can happen. God can intervene. God can bring judgment in time. Uh, sometimes we see sickness in other ways. Now, this is very tricky because I know many in our congregation are suffering, and, and I have suffered physically at various points. And, and the question is, is this my sin or another? The Bible gives us two signs of this. Sometimes physical problems and ailments are a function of sin. I think we're going to see that in a minute. Other times, they're not at all. We get a picture of a, a man that... Uh, uh, struggled and 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 what he was doing, and they asked, born blind, and they asked, was this the sin of him or his parents? And Jesus said, neither one. So sometimes physical ailments and maladies and even death are a function of just natural process without sin being involved. But sometimes, I think the Bible's clear that sometimes God judges sin and it results in physical ailments. Uh, and it's both. So the, if the, let me just be clear. I need to be so clear during this time. If you're struggling, as I have, with some long-term chronic issues, the first thing you do is you go to the Lord and you say, is there unconfessed sin in my life? Is there, are there issues that you want to address in my life that might lead to my healing? I, I've had that happen many times with people. And then if you feel clean in your conscience and the Lord hasn't said it, and they say, okay, this is just part of the fall, and God's going to transform me through this process. It, I'm not saying this is always one way or the other, but there are examples of both. And uh, when we take communion, this is part of what we're told to do. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 27 through 32. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. In other words, when we're coming together to take communion, it's important that we examine ourselves to see if there's any unconfessed sin. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. And then it says in verse 30, For this reason many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. In other words, some people have died because of unconfessed sin. And they're even taking communion. A communion is a time to examine ourselves. And we're going to be taking communion, I believe, next week. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would what? We would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Again, was Ananias and Sapphira a place of discipline or were they not believers? I just don't know that we can be definitive. I, I tend to fall on the side of they were part of the believing community. They made a serious error and, and God just chose in that moment to have this be a, a lesson for the last 2,000 years of the church. Very few people have never heard of the story of Ananias and Sapphira. So what we find is that we find in closing here, we find God hates sin. God loves for us to cross. He loves for us the Jerichos of our lives, the, the walls crumble and great victories, but we have to be very cautious as a body not to stop inquiring of the Lord, not to have the attitude that we can just, ah, oh, we've, we've got this, I can do this, I can. can. Do you feel like you can make it through a week of your life without prayer? Do you do you have decisions that are in front of you? Or maybe you find yourselves right now 
in a place of great trouble. Maybe you realize, you know, wow, I have the sin of Achan on the inside of me. I have the, I can see Gehazi. I've been greedy or I've got some unconfessed sin that's going on in my life. Let me just tell you, this lesson this morning is that God takes this very seriously. It has profound implications in our lives. Unconfessed sin has profound, not only for us, but potentially for our children and our children's children, our community, our church. Sin is grievous to God, even after we're saved. Now, I happen to believe in the, the absolute, you know, just longevity and the, the faithfulness of God to save me. I know God's saving me, but I also knows that he, I know that he will discipline us. So what if you are finding yourselves in trouble? Now I'm going to get to the discouraging part of this message. That's going to be next week. What if you are in trouble? What if you find yourself? Well, I can tell you even before next week, you can get down on your knees even now and pray and say, Lord, uh, go, go talk to somebody. Get a, bring it out into the open. Be transparent. We're going to look at some things. But I'm going to give you uh, some incredible insight. And the, I think the Bible is going to come alive and some very strange and unique stories that will continue to help us understand that God will rescue you and not kill you, not if you'll simply ask him to forgive you. Even as a believer, cross, victory, uh, folks, let's eradicate these defeats in our lives and get out of the trouble that we may even find ourselves in today. So anyway, I, I pray that this has been uh, uh, helpful. I'm sorry this is a two-parter. It was just impossible to try to put this together. I would have had to rush through the material uh, the foundation that was laid this week will be completely come to a head next week, and I think it's going to be one of the more hopeful messages that you will hear outside of the resurrection of Jesus himself. So let me close this in prayer. Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for my friends. Uh, I thank you for those. Uh, Lord, I pray for those who are suffering around the world. Uh, many have lost jobs and income and they're terrified and they don't know, Lord, we pray for them. We, we enter in and pray with these other churches over these coming weeks as we begin to humble ourselves before you and, and seek your face that you will heal the na our na not only our nation or our church or our community, but heal the whole entire globe doing, the work through the, doing your gracious work through the process. Lord, we give this day to you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. We'll see you back here next week. And I guess that'll be what? Day 56. Oh, ow. Love you so much. Have a great week.